You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman writing podcast, where each week my co-hosts Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight? Matt, I am going stir crazy. Monday morning, we get... Uh, what starts as a little dusting of snow that switches over to sleet, uh, that's Monday into Tuesday. We get maybe inch, half inch, maybe a little more than an inch of, uh, of accumulated precipitation. And here in North Alabama, and let me, let me explain it to people who don't live in the South. It's not familiar for us. Uh, we don't get winter weather all that often, so we don't have the infrastructure to deal with it. We don't have salt trucks. We don't have plows. I have been stuck inside my house since Monday, Matt. This is Wednesday. I'm losing my mind. It's it's the pandemic all over again. I'm I'm alone and afraid, and all I want is to be able to go outside and see my friends. Uh, so that's how I'm doing tonight. I do have, speaking of pandemic, which is a terrible transition, I have a, a correction to make. Friend of the show, uh, long-suffering COVID sufferer, uh, Josh Wheel, uh, sent me a message. And I hope by the time uh, this airs, he is he is better. Uh, he has to be better. Hey, Will, reading some back issues and came across the answer to your question about Waller's kids' names on the last episode, whatever episode that was. Uh, this is from Secret Files, number 14, May 1987. And it just explains and, uh, well, it doesn't really explain, but it's a lot of dialogue about Amanda Waller and her kids, Coretta and Martin and Jesse. And Josh did not include the author of Secret Files, number 14, but it's still really weird to me. I, and I'm sure, you know, a black reader might have very different thoughts, but... It just seems so, it's still just clunky and weird, right, Matt? Yeah, it's, it, it, that, I know that issue, that, that is Ostrander, and it seems very on the nose, much more on the nose than I'd expect. If anybody out there has strong feelings about uh, Amanda Waller's children, I'd, I'd love to hear different perspectives on this, especially given her ties to, I don't know, the state apparatus. It also seems weird. But again, I don't know. We'd have to go back and read that because Waller, when she was a family woman, she was not as deeply involved with the government. It was after the loss of her husband that she became the hard ass. So again, it's been years since I read that issue. And her origin has been so fucked with by the reboots, by the New 52 that again i couldn't remember all that but I, we'd have to go back and look at that issue at some point i mean not for this podcast i'm just curious yeah we do however know that she's no longer uh sexy 
<laughs> for whatever you want to say, more than one body type is not a is a good thing. Yes, absolutely. Anyway, moving on from that uh, awkward note, Josh Wheel, friend of the show, do get better. Thanks for sending that note in. We are happy to welcome another friend of the show, Tony Thornley. How you doing, Tony? Hello. I Hello. am doing excellent. I I am single parenting for the evening. Uh, my wife has been on a fantastic reading kick lately, and we still have library cards in our old jurisdiction from when we previously moved. So when she couldn't find the books of the series that she was currently reading in our current library system, she went down there and she is now down looking for more and returning the ones that she currently has. So it is a wonderful evening. Interestingly enough, Will, we got about five inches of snow just this morning and still went to school today. Yeah, isn't no, isn't it I, nice my, to live somewhere that uh, that can deal with that? That has the infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, it has the infrastructure. This is normally my in-office day. I'm at home three days a week and in office two days a week. Um, it was not good enough infrastructure for me to make my hour-long commute like I normally do on my in-office days. So there is that. So can I pose a question? Will's normally the one that poses the questions, but I've got an interesting one, a thought experiment for the two of you. Oh, dear. So I've said before, and I think the two of you may have seen this in the Comics XF Slack before, in the Marvel Universe, when it comes to building a team lineup, the distinctive, iconic teams, you can boil down to certain cores and then just do whatever the bleepity bleep you want. For example, the Avengers. Captain America on its own with any group of characters instantly Avengers. I think we can agree with that. If it's not Captain America, if you have a founder and a member of the Caps Coogie Quartet and another four to five members that are fairly random, believable as the Avengers. The X-Men, if you have one X-Men out of a group of about five, Cyclops, Wolverine, Storm, Nightcrawler, Rogue, if you have one of those and any number of mutants, you can believe that's a team of X-Men. Now, the more you have to that group, you know, if it's Wolverine and Kitty Pride and a bunch of random mutants, absolutely, so on. Fantastic Four, on the other hand, you could only get away with having one current member of the core member of the four four and three randos for about one story arc. If you have two, you can go about a year. Otherwise, you can't really do it with the Fantastic Four. Now, the thing I realized about this is it's kind of hard to apply that to the DC universe. So I'll throw out, obviously, Metal Men, Doom Patrol, some of these other more JSA. There, there is an absolute core that if you were missing Jay Garrick, it would not be the JSA. If you were missing Robot Man, it would not be the Doom Patrol, so on. But I'll throw to you the two teams that are most bad associated, the League and the Titans, could you pull off the same sort of idea with the Justice League or the Titans? In my mind, no. The League, I think you still need to have a core of about five or six core members. And the Titans, you've got to have Dick Grayson or, or a variation of Nightwing and a few other core, Beast Boy, Raven, Cyborg, you know, the Teen Titans Go group or the original Titans or whatever. 
So I'm curious your opinions on that idea for those two teams. Could you pull so, it off without the the core? I can tell that Matt is thinking really hard. And I'll jump in here with Justice League. So I think with Justice League, you need you need a green lantern slot. And that's really fungible. You can have any lantern, right? You can mix it up. You can have, uh, you know, a spicy lantern in there. That's one member. Martian Manhunter feels pretty integral. We have seen Batman come and go. I think you can do league stories without Batman, especially when they're going into space. Like, as they're going into space, like, what the, what the fuck is Batman going to do? I Conceivably, you could have, like, a Kryptonian slot. Like, it could be either Superman or Supergirl, I think, could be effective there. So, we, so that's Martian Manhunter, a Lantern slot. Or even Steel. Steel, uh, a Kryptonian so, slot, Matt, sir. Monel as well. I mean, he's Daxamite, but same power set. You need that power set. The Wonder Woman. I, I speed. Think, we 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 need a speedster. That's for sure. Right. I think you need an Amazon. I think it's Diana or nothing. If you are going to have an Amazon on on the league, Nubia, Donna, Artemis, they don't work. So to what you were saying. A bat, a, a super, could work as an alter Nightwing or Kate Kane or someone like that. Kara, Steel, maybe even Eradicator if you were to have one of those instances where Eradicator was kind of a good guy. But yeah, so sorry, Matt, go ahead. I think you need a member of the Trinity. It could be Dick Bat. But you need to have either Batman, Superman, or Wonder Woman. One of the three needs to be there in name. Even if it's Dick as Batman is on the team, then you can cycle in a different Kryptonian. You could possibly cycle in a different Amazon. I agree. I don't feel like Donna works. There was that period after Bruce died that the James Robinson Justice League, where it was all pretty much legacy characters, where it was Dick, it was Donna, it was Kara, it was McCall Tomas, Starman, Kung Gorilla. Cyborg was on the team. That's when Cyborg first joined the league. And I think you had Dick as Batman there, so you didn't need Clark in it. Monel, Monel was there for a brief period, but then Kara became the the super on the team. I agree about a lantern. I agree about a speedster of some kind. Jesse Quick, she was the speedster on that squad. Mm-hmm. I agree about Donna. I would like to see them give Nubia a shot. I don't know how well she'd work, and especially as Queen of Themyscira, she doesn't work because we've seen that with Hippolyta. It doesn't work when the Queen is also on the Justice League. But I think there'd be potential there, more so than either Donna or Artemis. I agree about Jean. One of the things about the New 52 League that doesn't work is the lack of Martian Manhunter. He was the one character who was on there nearly nonstop from the beginning through just before the new 52 during that he was only on when he was was not on when he was dead but he was pretty much there or, or the occasional story but he was pretty much there the entire time 
And it's one of the things that they've sort of quietly retconned him back onto the league because he is integral to the team function. And I would say, oh, sorry. And, and to go with that, the new 52 league did not feel like the league until Scott Snyder added John back to the lineup. Yeah. And it's no slight to Cyborg as a character. He's just a titan. I mean, when you've got a league that is comprised of second generation heroes who have moved up, then Cyborg makes sense. But when it's six Silver Age characters and Cyborg, it felt off. He didn't Mm -hmm. seem like he fit in that squad. I would agree. I would agree. But but here's, here's the thing about what you both said. The difference here in the DC universe is that what you're naming is the archetypes. You're still bringing in the big seven archetypes where the Marvel universe, you don't have to have the, the archetypes, but there's something that feels hollow on these DC teams if you don't have the archetypes mm-hmm. at a minimum in that place. So it's an interesting thought experiment that I wanted to throw out to the, the two of you. It is. I would say that an X team needs a telepath. It could be any telepath, but I think any X team requires some telepathic character because that is an archetype that's been there, whether it was Xavier or Gene. I guess there is the... Psylocke. Psylocke, Emma. There is the period... Rachel. In, yep. Xavier is still around. I was going to say the period after Dark Phoenix, after Gene's death, they don't get a telepath again for a while, but Xavier is around for most of that period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, with the Titans... The- My opinion on the Titans is without Dick or Robin, it doesn't feel like the Titans, but then also you have a group of about 10 or so characters that you can play with to still feel like the Titans. Think about Ben Percy's Teen Titans run from Rebirth. And you had three to four of those archetype characters. And then Percy added a few that were some good color. The second Wally West and Emiko Queen, for example. But but it still had Starfire, Raven, and Beast Boy on top of that. Right. And it's why nobody remembers the Dan Jurgens, Adam-led Titans, because they were also fairly generic characters. Mm-hmm. I don't think many of them got much personality. And it's why the Wolfman era after Zero Hour falls flat. Because there, your tentpole is Roy Harper. Mm-hmm. And Donna mm-hmm. Troy, but Donna with a Dark Star Donna. Not even Troy yep. Donna. Or the Jeff Johns group that didn't feel like the Titans again until Sean McKeever took over like two years later. Two or three years later, after Titans East. Yeah, because there it was, you had Tim and Cassie, but everyone else, because Connor was dead, Bart was dead, and it's why the Titans in the New 52 are just a complete disaster. Absolutely. I mean, that, yes, you've got... Until Rebirth. Yeah, because there, I mean, Tim, but as we said in the episode, that is Tim Drake in name only, as was with Bart, and Connor and Cassie, all of them were name-only mm-hmm. versions of those characters. Cassie was the closest, but even then she was Cassie and name-only. 
Yeah. The only decent thing to come out of that is Bunker, who's a halfway decent character when written well. But nothing else mm-hmm. came out of that era that anyone wants to remember. Well, thanks for entertaining that thought experiment and letting me do a fun. little bit. Speaking of the Titans and ending there, it's a nice little segue because this week is not a Batman-centric episode, but is instead a Nightwing-centric episode. Because we're talking about three stories featuring Nightwing and the most important people in his life who aren't Batman. Our first story of the night is The Boys. This is Nightwing, Volume 2, Number 25. The writer is Chuck Dixon, with pencils by Scott McDaniel, inks by Carl Story, colors by Roberta Tuiz, letters by John Costanza, and edited by Darren Vincenzo and Scott Peterson. The cover date is October of 1998. Nightwing takes Robin on a training exercise where they wind up talking about their lives, their relationships, and their futures. Starting right out of the gate, Problematic Creator Watch, right there. We've talked about it many times before. Chuck Dixon, he will be writing the first two stories of the night, remains a right-wing crank. Big old dick. Yeah. Let me ask you, Tony, what drew you to Nightwing here? I know I know that uh, Matt certainly picked a couple of these stories, but you, you picked the one. Why Nightwing? So it's interesting... Tim was actually more of my entry into the Bat universe than anything else. We, we talked about it the first time I guessed it, how Batman in the 90s to me was like Gambit in the 90s. Everyone loved him because he was edgy and cool, so I was sort of repelled by him. Tim was my favorite. Tim was my entry into that universe and how I always gravitated. But as I got older, Nightwing's coming of age happened at the same time as my coming of age. And and by coming of age, I don't mean Judas Contract. I mean Dick Grayson has had four or five different coming of ages. Let's let's be real. And the Nightwing series by Dixon and McDaniel was Dick Grayson finally 100 percent standing on his own. Because as Robin, it was always Batman and before the Dixon and, and McDaniel series, it was Robin or Nightwing, leader of the Titans, the icon of the Titans. But this was the one that it was Dick on his own, coming into his own as his completely own man. And it just hit at just the right time. It also helped that my entry into this Nightwing volume was the collection that included the No Man's Land arc. And and we're going to get into it in a, in a minute with the second issue. But that had the story that also cemented Dick and Babs as probably one of my few OTPs in fiction, along with Clark and Lois and Peter and MJ. Perkins that Spock. issue... <laughs> That, that took a little bit of time. I'm, I'm still not totally a TOS guy. Um, but yeah, so that, it was just a good timing. Now, this this issue in particular, I love because it was a perfect melding of the Dixon Nightwing and the Dixon Robin. 
which I, I really, going back, two of the greatest solo comic book series of all time, frankly, for all of Dixon's many, many, many faults. Many. Many. He nailed it with these two. And he really showed how these two can stand on their own as characters and not just Batman and. The only thing of substance I have to add to the discussion of this issue is, first, uh, I think it's a lovely concept. Just a great little one-off between two Robins, as it were, and uh, the faces here are all wrong. Uh, I think Nightwing looks like Damien and Damien, uh, or excuse me, uh, Robin looks like a baby. It ain't right uh, in terms of the art, but it's a, it's a fun story. This has been on my list to feature in an episode since I started coming up with episodes, because this is an issue I very distinctly remember. Because you can read this and you get the relationship between Tim Drake and Dick Grayson pitch perfect this is how they should interact and it's one of i'll swing back at it for a second the big faults with the new 52 is they eradicated this relationship suddenly tim had no relationship with dick and it was him and jason who were buddies and it made zero sense since they were rivals before the new 52 and it just felt like Hey, Scott Lobdell's writing both of these characters, so they have to be friends. And Dick is too busy doing Dick Grayson stuff. And to add to that, this is frankly the issue that finally cemented Dick and Tim as brothers. I think they had a good and an interesting relationship before that. But this is the issue that really cemented that these two are brothers and not just colleagues or kids that have a connection with one another especially when you look at when they first appeared dick was wary of tim i mean tim shows up on his doorstep being like hey you're nightwing and i need you to be robin and dick was understandably a bit put off by this so they've mm -hmm. they've worked together before uh, they'd been in bat crossovers together in the the night trilogy in contagion in legacy but this is when they gel and it's a nice snapshot of where each of their books are at this moment mm -hmm. the thing that jumped out at me reading this in 2024 is just how different their relationship with Jason Todd is. Oh yeah. No kidding. The, the mention of, do you think of him? The other guy, the one that's gone. It made me remember how, how everyone treated Jason with reverence till Red Hood from yeah. the early nineties till Red under the Red Hood. The specter of Jason Todd hung over 15 years of Bat Comics. The display, the tribute in the cave was front and center. And every time a Robin, a Batgirl, anyone was hurt, 
it was always a reminder of Jason and how much that haunted Bruce and how mm-hmm. much it haunted Dick to a degree. The first issue of Titans after Jason's death is one of the more strident confrontations between Bruce and Dick. Marv Wolfman really liked to play them at odds with each other in his Titans run. And Jason dies while Dick is on uh, New Kronos, I think, for the, the Who is Wonder Girl story. Like, he's in space, and he comes back, and Danny fucking Chase is like, hey, guess what? Robin died. Huh. And Dick tells <laughs> the little shit off, picks him off the Titans, and then goes and confronts Bruce. So there is this real specter of Jason and I mean, I guess there still is, but it's more of a cautionary tale specter than a, a or a different kind of cautionary tale. It's not the cautionary tale of you could wind up dead. It's you could go round the bend and start shooting people. It's a very different haunting. And I want to go back to the art and what you mentioned, Will. I'm not a big fan of McDaniel, except on Nightwing. He, he did an extended Superman run, and we've talked about me and Superman. And I think his Superman is one of the weakest periods of the Triangle Era Superman. If, if you could still consider the point that he drew Superman as Triangle Era. Where's Corey when you need him? He doesn't. Right. And Corey and I, I think, have had this conversation. But something about the kineticism of his art works for Nightwing, and, and to a lesser extent, he did a longer run with on Robin later on after Dixon had left. I think, what, third or fourth main writer on that Robin title, Bill William McDaniel, you know, worked to a lesser extent on 10 series. But there's just something about McDaniel's art that works for me with Nightwing that doesn't work for me in his work anywhere else. While I can see your comment about the faces, Will, the bodies, the motion here, McDaniel captures that. I think his stuff works okay on Daredevil as well, which is where he got his start. But that was also very muddily colored as memory serves. They were really trying some experimental stuff with Daredevil at that particular moment. And I think... It suffered for that. But I think he gets the way an acrobatic character moves really well. So I think he works best, as I agree with you, Tony, on Nightwing more so than on Batman or Robin. He's the artist for most of Brubaker's run on Batman and mm-hmm. Larry Hama's run, too. Yeah, he, he All goes five issues of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He goes from 575 to 608 with a few fill-ins in there because he only leaves when Hush starts. There are a few Dixon hallmarks in here. The Dick Grayson becomes a cop story was a very big Dixon thing and something that was ended pretty quickly after Dixon left. Devin Grayson gets him off the force pretty quick and unsurprisingly all the dick grayson on the force stuff is copaganda to its nth degree 
like, yeah, there's bad cops, but you know, it's all the good cops who are trying to make it work in a dirty city versus Gotham, which always sort of feels like, yeah, there's a few good cops who are trying, but they're fighting an uphill battle. I also feel like the whole thing with talking about his hookup and breakup with Huntress really feels like Dixon being bitter that they let Devin Grayson write this Nightwing Huntress miniseries and the character that he had been writing was taken out of his hands. So I'm going to take a shot across the bow that I think that's a stupid, bad relationship. Because those were both characters Dixon had been handling for the longest time. And then suddenly they gave this Forrest miniseries to Devin Grayson. So I feel like that was him just being petulant on the page. Yeah, it feels like he's being a prick. Which is kind of typical for him, being petty like that. I did get a kick out of the fact that the only villains we get in this are a gang who raids moving trains. And what are they stealing? VCRs. That's not yeah. That's some very Fast and the Furious 1 energy where the big heist is TV VCR combos in a series that will soon have them ripping vaults out of walls and stopping nuclear submarines. Going to space. Which, that also cracks me up because there's also multiple references to, was this concurrent to No Man's Land and the Cataclysm? Like, it feels a little early for it. This is Aftershock. This is in Nightwing 19 and 20 are its cataclysm chapters. So there's about six to nine months in between the earthquake and no man's land. So this is right in the middle there. And it's probably about a year before dick heads into the nml i want to say that the nightwing arc in no man's land is the mid 30s that seems right to me that does seem right to me so we're probably and the interesting thing they're making those mentions of the no man's land and the cataclysm and the earthquake and then the vcr ripoff happens which you would think if Dixon had been a little bit smarter about it, it would have been supplies. It would have been relief supplies, medical equipment and medicine and food and water and stuff like that. So it was really a funny juxtaposition between those references to No Man's Land and Cataclysm while VCRs, which are, we, we now know in retrospect, would be completely useless in Bloodhaven and Gotham in a matter of a month. Yeah, and there's the the references to the spoilers pregnant story, which was a big thing at the moment and has now been retconned into non-existence. Thank God. Yeah, it's so funny to see how these character beats that were essential to characters get completely forgotten thanks to these events and how you can cherry pick the stuff you want to keep and the stuff that you can get rid of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I remember the spoiler Huntress one shot from Cataclysm Aftershocks ish, where the pregnancy isn't even mentioned. And I, and I think she had she had the baby within a month or so of this issue, and then everyone forgot about it. She gives the kid up for adoption, and it's never mentioned again. Mm-hmm. Went back to her home planet. I do like that 
Tim is still at this point the Robin who thinks that someday he'll get out. That was not something that Tinian brought in in Rebirth to just sort of give him an extra layer of pathos. That's been there since this point. That's been there since the Armageddon 2001 Batman annual where you see Tim 10 years in the future and he's giving up being Robin to try to change the world by going into politics, which, boy, how do we know that doesn't work now? But in 1991, there might have been hope. I just, I love the rapport between the two of them in this issue. And I love that Tim, and it's something we've seen with Tim Again, from near the beginning, because Tim has that one zero-hour tie-in in his book where he runs into young Dick Grayson. And there he's equally impressed by Dick, the natural athlete, the thing that he isn't. And here, you know, the thing about, I feel like I'm too cautious and too afraid. And you and Bruce have no fear. And Dick's just like, yeah, I guess we fooled you too, huh? It's a nice bonding moment between them. And that's what this issue is full of. The first two issues we're talking about tonight are both very quiet. They're character pieces. And mm -hmm. that's the, the best part of this. And it ends with Tim and Dick bantering about Dick's relationship with Barbara, which is what we'll be getting into next, which I think is a good segue, unless anyone has anything else. Uh, I got nothing else, so that means it's time for Nightwing 25, the boys on the big board! We are at 363 stories on the big That's board. a lot of stories, man. Yes, indeed. Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Number 50 is Identity Crisis, not that one, where Tim Drake takes up the mantle of Robin officially. And coming in a family-friendly 69, it's Batman's mystery casebook, Batman as Encyclopedia Brown. At 100 is Unknowing, the Greg Rucka Mad Hatter story. At 150 is Larceny My Sweet, the Batman Adventures Clayface issue. 200 is the Idiot Root crossover. 250 is Dark Knight, a true Batman story, the autobiographical Paul Dini book. 300 is Anarchy, Prophet of Doom from Shadow of the Bat. And all the way at the bottom, still the reigning anti-champ, Curse of the White Knight. Still sucks. I, I think this is number two on the night. It's a very, very solid story. Quibbles with the art aside. Top 200 for sure. Yes. I was going to throw out, it might even be 150. I think there look is at, some distance the between, uh, and, and sorry to talk over, but I, I think there is some distance between this story and the top story of the night. I think there's a little bit of separation, but this one's certainly solid. I can definitely put this one in the top 150. I like Larceny My Sweet. It's a good little Clayface Summer Gleason. It's got a, a bit of an emotional punch to it, but it has the problem of an adventure story where this is a story that 
should have had more room to develop that relationship and it doesn't happen because those were designed to be one-offs but it felt like it should have had more time this is a one-off that works within its page count so i think this is better than batman tmnt uh at 110 but not as good as robin dies at dawn at 103 i would agree with that yes that's a a fairly small range interestingly comparable to madness in that it's in the character piece of it right i was looking because madness and the secret origin of scarface are both really digging into character so i think it's right in there actually that whole a lot of that area is because above that is a lonely place of living or a couple above that is lonely place of living which is a tim drake character piece but there's also all this plot going on around that okay i'm gonna i'm gonna throw out a number i'm gonna say 105 in between where were you the night batman was killed and a lonely place of living works for me because lonely place of living is good but there's a lot and a lot of it gets hamstrung by having to do all of the tie into the mr oz stuff but where were you the night batman was killed is just so freaking fun it's good now I'm going to be interested, Will, in which one of these next two you think is the better, because I thought that was the strongest one of the night. So I'm going to be really curious to hear your opinion on both of these next two. Oh, look, we've got two more stories to go. One is clearly better than the other one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our second story of the night is on wings. This is Birds of Prey, volume one, number eight. The writer is Chuck Dixon, with pencils by Greg Land, inks by Drew Garachi, colors by Gloria Vasquez and Digital Chameleon, letters by Albert de Guzman, and edited by Jordan B. Gorfinkel and Joseph Illich. The cover date is August of 1999. Dick Grayson remembers a night out with Barbara Gordon, a night at the circus that might lead to more, if the two can just catch each other at the right moment. Oh, Matt, that's very good. Very good. Thank you. This is a lovely story. It is. It is. Very beautiful. It has a lot to say about Dick and Barbara. Barbara living with a disability. In some ways, I feel unqualified to really kind of judge it and assess it because, yeah, I, I'm, I can't come at it with that disability framework but it is a very emotional very lovely story i completely agree with that and this is this is the story paired with the issue that i was talking about a, a minute ago in the mid-30s or so of nightwing that really cemented dick and babs as a couple as as the you know, as much as i hate the term otp this is the one of the two single issues that cemented that for me they have their reunion in the no man's land and their big embrace and kiss two to three months after this this was setting that the stage for them actually taking a shot 
at being a couple. Birds of Prey is a little weird at this point in that Barbara is in the no man's land, but Birds of Prey never addresses Barbara being in no man's land, which is weird since Dixon was writing Nightwing, which is in no man's land. Although I would say you could argue that this issue is kind of nebulous because Dick avoided going into the no man's land until that point that you just referred to. But here he's sitting in the clock tower. So this this issue, you're absolutely right, but also this issue is kind of nebulous that it could have taken place, you know, between issues two and three of of Birds Birds of Prey. Yeah, I just, think just throwing out throwing out issue numbers, not okay. saying that it actually takes place between those. I think Birds of Prey as a series sort of clumped a bunch of adventures that would take place before No Man's Land, and then No Man's Land happens, and then the series just jumps to post No Man's Land because otherwise it just doesn't work. There is a point where it's clearly post no man's land but before that it's I'm mostly following around black canary doing black canary stuff when barbara didn't have contacts outside the nml so it had to take place all sort of before that but that's a lot of continuity wonkiness that isn't necessary for this story which is great this story requires no continuity besides you know who nightwing is you know who oracle is great you're good do you know what killing joke is so reading this and sort of the the non-resolution we had at the end of it really got me thinking about as i've talked many times before professional wrestling and the idea in booking professional wrestling is that you want to pay off the big baby face moment, right? You want to get that audience and really invest them, really build up that delayed gratification. So I like in this issue that you don't have Dick and Barbara immediately getting back together. I like that you continue that will they, won't they for, as you said, a couple more months, and that really draws in the investment, right? You really want to see them together uh, by the end of this issue, but you're not given that. So I really like that as a storytelling device, paying that forward. It's a will they, won't they, but not in the sense of what you see when you think will they, won't they, Moonlighting or Castle or, you know, those those TV shows that have are built around around the romantic tension. This is a will they, won't they, about two human beings, one of whom is, is still dealing with trauma and still trying to, even though she is her best self out of that trauma, she's still dealing with it and she is still coping with the after effects of it. But while she is, she's also not wallowing in it. I love the moment where she actually kind of ribs Dick about the whole thing, where she points out that you brought me to a place with clowns. They're not exactly my favorite. And Dick freezes up and she's just like, I'm just busting you. It's it's fine. She is still less than a year away from the 
first time where she confronts the Joker after killing Joe, where she absolutely is like, I've moved on from this. But we're also building towards that. Because that comes up in Birds of Prey shortly after No Man's Land. And this is setting the stage for the the Dick and Babs relationship, but it's also setting the stage for Barbara finally closing the the book on her relationship with the Joker, which I just wish they had let that book stay closed. No, we got to reference it all the time, Matt. <laughs> 30 years later. Yeah. Alan Moore. Alan Moore has one bad day and we can't get away from it. Well, that, that's exactly it. You know, he, that he acknowledges. Yeah, exactly. I still writing comic books 30 years later based on a bad mood I had once in the 80s. <laughs> that was a clip. That was exactly what he said and how he said it. Little I love you. <laughs> I love that episode of The Simpsons where Alan Moore guest stars as himself. It's wonderful. It, it, it's pretty great. It's like the issue of Simpsons comics that had Grant Morrison and uh, Mark Miller try to stab each other. Yes. So I'm going to throw out two things, though, that for me are why I think the Nightwing issue was the stronger between these two. The first is this is Bab's book, but the entire issue is centered on Dick and Dick's internal monologue, Dick's internal feelings. Like, this was a Nightwing issue. The only thing about it that was a Birds of Prey issue was the framing sequence, which was weird. And the framing sequence just felt like an afterthought. This was a Nightwing issue. This is not a Birds of Prey issue. I would think this issue would have been much stronger if it had been centered in Barbara's internal monologue, not Dick. Or a dual internal monologue of both. And then Greg Land... You know, this is, I wish Greg Land stayed like this. This is much closer to Terry Dodson than it is the Greg Land of today. But you just get those glimpses of what he's about to become. There are panel here, panel there, that you're just like, that is just, we're not years away from him becoming what he he becomes. We are days away from it so those are the two things for for me for this where i think this issue falls short i i think it's great and i i think it's very comparable comparable and very close to that nightwing issue but i think the nightwing issue was stronger because this is centered on the man's perspective in a female-led book this is like superman guest starring in an issue of wonder woman and it's entirely from superman's perspective to me this issue was stronger because so many times i resort to what moved me emotionally right what made me tear up what made me reflect what made me turn inward as i'm reading something and then you know, that Nightwing story was, you know, interesting. I liked how it developed uh, the relationship between Dick and Tim. But this issue, right, really gets at some serious, serious thoughts. Like, what is it to live with a disability? What is it to mm-hmm. try to persevere over trauma? 
And it's that emotional core that just, just really laser focuses on that, that makes this issue better than the last one for me. And I don't disagree with you one bit, but again, if it had been from Bab's perspective and not Dick's, it would have been about 10 times better. I completely agree with you. You make an excellent point. And I, I don't think you're wrong one, one bit, but it would have been way better if it was from Bab's perspective. It's funny. I have, I have that, both of the notes you just said, Tony, in my notes as well, because I, I was perplexed that it was a purely Dick Grayson narrated issue. And there's one particular panel in the circus where one of the clowns faces is that Greg Land open mouth face. I'm like, Oh, that's a Greg Land panel right there. And a couple of pages after that, there is a panel of Dick that basically Land traces that panel for every single male lead that he has the rest of his career. You know, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Land and tracing. I was pretty sure those tigers were traced. Like I didn't, I didn't go through the trouble of researching it, but I looked at it and I'm like. That's some goddamn Ringling Brothers art right there. Like it looked so precisely like that what they do. I'm like, you, mm, that's not original stuff right there. That is Greg that, Land. That did cross my mind too. That is Greg Land to a T. You look at his stuff, and often there have been social media accounts that have made their bones by just finding the photo that Greg Land is tracing and putting it next to the shot of, okay, this is the lingerie model that he is modeling this panel of Emma Frost from in Uncanny X-Men. But to his credit, the fact that he does that with his kids means that his kids look like kids and not just tiny adults with giant heads. (laughs) A valid point. And this is... Before he was just a tracer, his Nightwing Mm -hmm. and his Birds of Prey is considerably better. It's about when he goes over to CrossGen and does Sojourn that he starts tracing. Even the early issues of Sojourn aren't quite as bad, mostly because he's drawing orcs and it's hard to find an orc to trace. They're historically very reclusive when it comes to being photographed. But the the human characters in there are fairly traced. And then he goes back to Marvel and it's like, eh, game over, man. Our our good friend Zachary Jenkins has said before, the book I, and I agree with this, I've thought the same. The book I would most like to see Greg Land do is Transformers. Although I, I will say Hulk would probably be a close second. Mm. I don't think we haven't actually talked about what is the the pivot point of this issue, the bit where the title comes from. That Dick takes Barbara to Haley Circus, which he bought back in Lonely Place of Dying. And A, I feel like he had this planned to begin with. Like he asks Barbara what she misses most about life before the killing joke. And she talks about that moment of free fall right when you jump from a rooftop, that moment where you feel like you're flying, where you're on wings. And at that moment, he 
you know, like, yeah, you've got the the upper body strength. Come on. And he takes her up on the trapeze. They do some swings. And in the end, she has that moment where she lets go and they do a catch. And that's the moment where they have this moment of trust. And it's really, really a beautiful moment. That I would completely agree with. 110% agree with that. That's the moment where you know it's a case of when, not if, they'll get together. But you know they both have somewhere to go before they can. Dick's observation that Barbara is still holding a piece of her heart locked away. And that's where we'll get in a few months in No Man's Land. And I absolutely love that that exchange, second to last page of the issue. You know why I don't have handles on my chair, Grayson? I don't like to be pushed. That's a good and line. And let me tell you, those two bubbles, if anything could capture what Barbara Gordon, I almost said Barbara Grayson, Barbara Gordon was from the mid-90s to until the new 52. It's those two lines right there. By the way, just having looked at it, this issue drops the same month as Assembly, the issue in No Man's Land where Bruce has Barbara reach out to Nightwing and Robin and ask them to come back because it's time we all got back together. So yeah, the Dick in No Man's Land stuff starts the next month. It's also the same month that Justice League Foreign Bodies came out. So we are at the pivot point where Barbara begins to move past the bitterness about the situation that she is in. So your issue with that, Will, we're right on the cusp where that does start being out of character, but we're not quite there yet. We got to continue No Man's Land. We do. And we might be at a point where we just need to do a No Man's Land episode and do a few No Man's Land stories. Because the one, the next one that we have to do, Mosaic, is actually a big Barbara story because it's where Barbara sees the new Batgirl for the first time. Ooh, I bet there are lots of thoughts there. Oh, yeah. She's not happy with Bruce. We'll just say that much. And we'll and it's it's Greg Rucka. It's Rucka's first Batman story that isn't a short in Batman Chronicles. So it's Well, goddamn, Matt, we ought to get on that. Yeah. Well, if we continue going the way we do, after next week, we'll be able to hit the next of each of the series we've been following in those episodes. Because That's coming next week, Matt. Oh, we'll we'll talk about that at the end of the night. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. You, as you said, well, you gotta, you know, gotta build the anticipation. Anticipation. That's gonna be a fun edit. And the best part of that is that Matt could edit that to be as long and as or as short as it needs to be. Unless either of you has anything else, I think we're good here. Uh, on that note, I think it's time to Birds of Prey number eight on wings on the big board. I think it is exactly in line with that previous story. 
it's right around the same area. It's very, very close. But above and top 100, because this made me feel, Matt. Not everything makes me feel. I will give you that. It's in the 90s, I think. Yeah, I'd say um, Oracle Year One is a stronger Barbara story, given Tony's thoughts uh, that were absolutely on point here about this being a Dick narrated book. I don't know. We got Hush right there at 90. I think this is better than Hush. I'd be happy to put this as the new 90, Ben. All right, let's do it. I think that's perfect. Now we're going to Trifle Town. Very much Trifle Town. Our final story of the night is Doorway to Nightmare. This is Flash plus Nightwing number one. The writers are Brian Augustin and Mark Wade with pencils by Eduardo Barreto, inks by Jerry Fernandez, colors by Ian Laughlin, letters by Gaspar Saladino, and edited by Jason Hernandez Rosenblatt and Paul Kupperberg. The cover date is January of 1997. Dick Grayson and Wally West's annual road trip together takes them to New Orleans to look at a mysterious house where a murder occurred. But something more extraordinary than a simple murder is lurking in the nightmare house. All right, a couple of quick points. Um, was this designed to be any kind of series or anything? Like, what what was this? Flash Plus. This was a series of one-shots. Okay. Where you had Flash plus Nightwing, Batman plus Arsenal, Superman plus the Legion of Superheroes, Robin plus Impulse. There were a bunch of them where it was just teaming up different characters Sometimes who would have logical connections and sometimes to just be like, hey, let's throw these two mismatched characters together and see what happens. Okay, good. I, I was confused because like I didn't see any more Flash Plus books. Uh, but yeah, the, the typical number one inflation that we that we've seen. First thought. Second thought. This book so desperately, desperately wanted to tap into the Winchester House mystique in San Francisco and then wanted to move it to New Orleans. And I just want to state for the record, there is nothing creepy or weird about the Winchester House in San Francisco. It is just a woman who wanted to keep people employed during economic downturns. There's nothing weird or strange about the Winchester House. It's not mysterious. It is just a house, but I guess taking it to New Orleans and then grafting all this Lovecraftian stuff on top of it is, I don't know, at least passably interesting. But there is a lot in this book that was kind of dumb. It was intended to be a character piece, but needed to have requisite pages of punching, and it leaned too far into the latter. For those who don't know how editorial and comic offices work, the fact that the names of the editors that I said there are names that I have never said in relation to a bat title before indicates that this came out of the same office that The Flash was edited out of, not the bat titles. This is a Flash issue guest starring Nightwing rather than a Nightwing story guest starring Flash or a real like two-hander 
where the Flash office and the Bat office were working together. The fact that it's Wade and Augustine also indicates that as they were the writers on Flash at this period. Which was typical for these plus books. You know, the Robin plus was by Dixon. The Superboy plus, I believe, was by Carl Kiesel at the time. Superman plus was by Dan Jurgen. The Batman plus was the tryout for Devin Grayson, which is why it's Arsenal, because Devin Grayson is madly in love with Arsenal and Dick Grayson and madly in love with, that is her one true pairing, Dick and Roy. And Dick Grayson's butt. She was discovered because she was writing Dick Roy Slash, and it was just really well-written Dick Roy Slash thing. Good for her. Yeah. Her, Jay Farber, and Brian Vaughn, and it's never going to happen again. Yeah. It's so weird. I I forgot about that. But yeah, that's, that's all of them. Weird. That was a wild west, the wild west of the early internet or early public internet. Yes, the internet was around in the 80s. Go and read a Denny O'Neill question and there will be whole pages describing how the internet works from top. DARPA! Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember reading that and laughing and then realizing, oh, right, this came out in the late 80s. People really didn't know what the internet was. And reading it again, reading it for the first time in 2004 or five seems so quaint. Yeah, I mean, this is an eldritch horror story. This is, oh, we're investigating this thing. And, oh, it turns out that there are eldritch beasties using this house to be summoned. It's very, I I try to use eldritch rather than Lovecraftian just because if I... Don't have to call out Lovecraft himself. Speaking of problematic creators, <laughs> that motherfucker. Oh boy. Racist piece of shit. So the biggest problem I think I have with this issue, aside from it desperately trying to again graft the Winchester house onto New Orleans lore, the women who were side characters in this book. They are so clearly not dressed as, we'll say, quote unquote, civilians. It just beggars belief that you see these scantily clad superhero attired women running through New Orleans. And then uh, Dick and Wally are like, oh, you guys are just hanging out here. You guys are just lost. What's going on? Like, that just didn't make any sense. There was a real disconnect between the story and the art. It's Halloween. Thought, they specifically the say it's Halloween. They aren't Halloween costumes, Matt. I feel like they were intended to be Mardi Gras. Which is weird because like, that's February. And Dick specifically says that it's Halloween at one point. My problem was less the weird costumes and more the fact that they were not really characters and were just not in the least there as kind of a, a gag. So eventually one of them could get really drunk and throw up on the alien who's leading the invasion and distract him. That is what one does in New Orleans. And I, I was kind of like, where does she keep getting this beer? She's lost in this, this house. Where does the beer keep coming from? Lady, he's putting my kids through college. Bottomless six-pack. Yeah. She she got the cheat code for the bottomless six-pack. This is absolutely, as you said, this is a trifle. 
This is completely trifly. There are a couple of moments that are kind of cute between Dick and Wally, but I wish that they could have done more with that relationship here. And I also kind of wish that, you know, they talk about this is an annual tradition between the two of them. This is the only time it happens. I would have liked to have seen this become something that popped up, you know, in a Flash annual or a Nightwing annual or an in-between arcs issue on one of the books. The Dick and Wally friendship is one of these relationships that often feels like a best friendship of convenience because they aren't teamed up that often anymore. For the back half of the pre-New 52 era, from about 2000 until the New 52, Dick and Roy Harper teamed up a lot more often than Dick and Wally. And Wally was always so busy on Flash family business, he and Dick... Or League. Or League business, yeah. That he and Dick didn't spend a lot of time together. It was one of Wade's early Flash stories. This one, I mean, Wally was the best man at Dick's wedding, failed wedding to Starfire. And I think Dick was the best man at Wally's wedding to Linda. But it's one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, they're best friends. And it's a friendship that would have been nice to explore more. Actually, Wally spent more time with Kyle Rayner during this period, like developing that friendship than Dick and he. The issue of the New Frontier special that we covered last week that has the Robin Kid Flash short does a good job of setting up why they work together. Because Dick is the thinker. Dick is the analytic mind. And Wally thinks with his feet because he's the fastest man alive. And there's so much to mine with that that doesn't at all get dealt with here. I, I agree. This is, and Wade even wrote this relationship better than it is here in this issue. You know, it's I like the relationship between these two, but it's just not on the page very well here. It's fine. It's fun. It's a good one shot for anyone that stands both, but that's about it. And I said, this reads like a Flash comic because it's got the the Wally narration, which was the staple of Flash comics in this era. The my name is Wally West and I'm the Flash, the fastest man alive. And it took me a moment where I was like, he's calling him Wally in public. He's like, oh, right, because Wally West's identity was public for 15 years until Jeff Johns retconned it out in Flash 200. Or not retconned, but before Peter Parker, before Dick Grayson, Wally West was the first hero to have his public identity scrubbed by magic. My favorite little Easter egg in here is the construction company, is the Fortunato company. Anyone? Anyone? Literature? Edgar Allan Poe? Oh. Casco Montiato. For the love of God, Montresor. Yes. For the love of God. One of my favorite Poe stories. The art is good. It's Eduardo Barreto. It's 
solid superhero work. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's much more to say. As we said, this is is pretty much trifling. Unless either of you have anything else, I think we can move forward. I was just going to say, you said exactly what I was going to say about the art. So, oh, that means it's time for Flashwing or Flashwing. Well, that means it's time for Flash Plus Nightwing Doorway to Nightmare on the big board. Trifle Town at this point is the 180s through the mid 200s. And I think that's. That's right where we're looking here. I was considerably lower on this book when I was thinking about it. I was thinking the whole time Catwoman election night, 310 currently. I, it just made me feel dumb for reading it, Matt. This book? This book. If you want to do a Winchester House story, do a Winchester House story. By God. I mean, it, I'm not going to fight that. It, it's not. <laughs> it, this is, I will say it goes above Catwoman election night because it's not anywhere near as dumb as election night. But. And, and I felt it got a little too exposition-y at points where it was like, oh, this is mm-hmm. clearly an alien invasion. Oh, this is what we need to do. I would say I like Hollywood Nights better at 286. Oh, yeah, no. I was just naming sort of, look, if we were in Trifle Town, like the the really, the, the better trifles are in that area. But looking yeah. here, I wouldn't, I'd say Clash of Symbols at 296, I enjoy more than this. And holy terror, we, we that's that's gonna be caught in the, the re-rankening. So that's the re-rankening one day. I like this better than Scourge the Owls. As always, the principle shorter is better. Yeah. See, Clash of Symbols, we need to reread that because that belongs above some of this other. That's another one that I feel like needs to be looked at for a re-ranking. Give me a place. If we're going below Hollywood Nights, below 286. I would say above Massacre and Grey at 290. Yeah, because I, I I don't think... I, I can pref- agree with that. Yeah, I prefer Last Chance, the Dead Man animated issue at 288. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy to say, okay, so the new 290? New 290. Tony, thank you for stopping by. Uh, what are you working on right now? Thank you. Just the same stuff I was last time. You'll see my stuff a few times a month at ComicsXF and at Comic-Con.com. And we'll we'll get to our next X-Chat soon enough. Yes, indeed. That does it for this week. Next week, it's a big one. It's Batman and the New Gods, including the next stop on our Grant Morrison tour, Final Crisis. Oh, that's uh, just going to be like five issues, right? Yeah, it's it's only a couple comics. Oh, okay, good. Good. Uh, We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. Get better soon, Josh. Asimov fangirl, Tony Thornley. Go Utes! Hey, that's me. Sam Hopper, John Wickham, 
Robert Secundus. Bobby Two Bucks. Tim Rooney. Giorgio Sorgioli. David Wheel. Alexander Wheel. Matt McThorne. McThorny. And Dan Over for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics. And the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BatChat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm never leaving. Good night, Huntsville, you frozen wasteland. <laughs> and be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. Stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.